Welcome back to the Just for a Closer Walk podcast. My name is Joel Oslin, and this is episode 15, believe it or not. We are trekking right along. So uh, just a very brief recap. We are eventually going to be moving into a season of doing a chronological study through the New Testament. And that's going to be something that will uh, hopefully intentionally be in a bit more detail, maybe in a bit more depth than perhaps you've ever studied the New Testament prior. And uh, the ability to to go through it chronologically, I think, is kind of a unique approach because the way, as we've uh, expressed it previously on some of the earlier episodes, the way that the Bible is organized is actually based on literature type rather than based on chronology. And uh, if you're not familiar with those words, um, the chronology basically is just the sequence of events. So it's when you think of things uh, like on a timeline, what events happen uh, in order uh, from earliest to latest. So that's basically all chronology is. And so we're kind of going through and looking at a chronological study of the New Testament. But of course, we, uh, we have a massive amount of scripture that precedes the New Testament and uh, really has to be, at least to a degree, has to be understood before we can really jump in and have a good, solid understanding or a, or a base context layer in order to understand the New Testament study that we will really dive into a lot deeper. So what we've been doing the last couple of episodes and what will probably take a few more episodes is uh, to really get through is to do a little bit of a recap on the Old Testament and kind of looking at that in a sense of chronology. And the, the first few episodes really uh, go through the first couple of books of the Bible because those portions are, are chronological and then it really kind of starts to ramp up uh, from there. So we get into the books of history, and those really overlap pretty significantly with the books of poetry, the books of prophecy, uh, and so on after that, and the books of poetry. Um, so the, uh, the place that we left off last episode, we really jumped pretty much almost through the entire book of Genesis, which is in a massive, massive amount of time span that we covered. So really coming from the, uh, coming out of the creation account, going all the way through uh, generations and generations and, and expansion uh, of, of population in the earth and from people moving really to all the different corners of the world as well. So of course we got introduced to a few of the big figureheads of the uh, the what we like to call the Jewish or the the Israelite uh, faith and tradition, and so you start out with kind of the figurehead being Father Abraham, who had many sons. And if you sang the Sunday school song, you know that many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, left foot, right foot, turn around, touch the ground, sit down, do jumping jacks. And so on and so forth. That's how we learned it, at least. Um, so we met Father Abraham, of course, uh, his sons Ishmael and Isaac. And of course, uh, Isaac having Jacob and Esau, Jacob having an encounter in his life with God directly, who gave him a name change to Israel. And that became the moniker or the namesake for, the, uh, for basically what we call the nation or the tribes of Israel that we read about through the whole rest of the Old Testament and honestly, even again in the New Testament. So that's where the whole 
the whole nation, the whole tribe, the whole family is named after Israel. So that was, uh, we covered that a lot last week. Uh, Israel, uh, Jacob had several sons, and one of those was uh, a boy named Joseph who <laughs> got on the radar of his brothers in a very negative way. So they, uh, they wound up as apparently as, uh, as envious brothers and a large family like that apparently like to do is they uh, sold Joseph off into slavery. So that's kind of messed up and that's what happened. So Joseph spent uh, approximately 13 years between his uh, servanthood, his, his slavehood under Potiphar. Uh, between that and the years that he spent in prison was about 13 years. And so it's pretty significant that Joseph was around 17 years old when he was first sold into slavery. And um, I'm not sure exactly uh, at what age God had given him that original vision of seeing uh, all the, essentially all the brothers bowing down to him. And uh, he was probably a bit younger, I would guess, probably uh, maybe early teens, but (laughs) who knows for sure. I wouldn't be terribly surprised uh, knowing what we do about uh, the way that teenagers think. We've all been there. We've all been the smartest people in the world at one point until we got older and realized that we weren't. Um, so I wouldn't be terribly surprised if, uh, if Joseph was not completely uh, <laughs> sensitive or considerate maybe when he shared these original dreams. Uh, but a little bit of that's just speculation. We're just kind of going off of what we know of human nature for that. But from the age of 17 for 13 years in, in slavery, in prison, you got to know that Joseph was wondering, God, what about that vision? When is that going to come to fruition? And just the faithfulness, the ability to continue to to honor and converse and share God uh, with everybody that Joseph interacted with and the, the evidence in his work ethic being very good as a slave, um, being even very good (laughs) making the lemonade out of lemons, right? Even when he got into the uh, jail, being kind of put in a position of leadership over the other prisoners. So uh, really kind of having God's golden touch, as it were, um, even though all of his surroundings were less than ideal, is one way that we could say that. So 13 years of waiting, but... After that, there's this significant, significant turning point where these years and years of faithfulness uh, begin to pay off in a way that nobody, and especially Joseph, uh, could not have possibly uh, foreseen. You know, nobody other than God, of course, who knew that this was going to be coming. And he raises Joseph up, gives him the ability to interpret these visions, these dreams, and to give the accurate uh, explanation and interpretation of these dreams. And he does so ultimately for Pharaoh uh, in Egypt. And basically what the vision was, was God was letting the Pharaoh know ahead of time that, hey, you're about to enter into seven years of just extreme abundance and harvest. Years like none other that you've ever seen before and honestly will probably never see again. Just the greatest seven years of abundance that you could ever imagine. And uh, following that is going to be seven years of just incredible famine 
And it's not going to be just here in Egypt. It's just going to be across the entire known world. It's going to be just this massive famine that goes for seven years. And so God gives Joseph the ability to uh, to discern and to give the the meaning and the uh, the interpretation of this vision to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is just so blown away uh, by this whole interaction, and he recognizes that this is there. There's definitely some supernatural uh, favor that's resting on Joseph at the point. And so he elevates this lowly prisoner all the way to basically the second in command over the entire nation of Egypt. He says, you're only second to me in the entire land and everybody else has to do what you say. So he raises him up to this incredibly high position. He elevates him and he says, now what I want you to do is is prepare us for the years of famine. Do what we need to do in the years of abundance so that we can weather the storm. And through the Holy Spirit, through uh, the blessing of of God's wisdom, uh, he actually equips Joseph with not only the resource to be able to allow Egypt to survive in this the, these years of tribulation and famine, but he actually enables him with, with just such an incredible insight and wisdom to be able to actually set Egypt up for uh, to be a blessing to the rest of the world. So not only would Egypt be able to weather the storm and the famines uh, to be able to survive it, but they would actually have such an abundance stored up from the seven years of harvest that they would be able to supply grain and, and resources to the whole rest of the known world. And that's exactly what happened. And so you see uh, really what's fascinating, and I, I, I'm excited to share a couple of these little historical insights for you, um, but we see that that basically this is kind of Egypt's meteoric rise in a sense of, uh, of global influence and, uh, and I don't know what you would call it, I guess dynasty authority or, or <laughs> there's probably a better way of describing it. Uh, so it was interesting. I was going back and, and just kind of conferring with a few of the, uh, the notes as to, you know, maybe speculatively who would have been the Pharaoh or the Pharaohs that Joseph would have interacted with. And there was a few of them that were kind of around that that uh, timeline. And so for you historians out there, uh, this would have been taking place during the Middle Kingdom uh, of Egypt. And so this is kind of somewhere in the range of, you know, around 1900, kind of around 1800 uh, BC, or if you prefer BCE, uh, was the years in question here. And uh, in the, the timelines, they're a little bit, you know, when you start looking at older historical uh, figures and and rulers and dates, and you try to dial these things in, you really just have a lot of uh, competing thoughts and interpretations. There's a lot of uh, people that just dispute the chronology. Some some people think that certain dates line up with certain leaders, and other ones think, well, maybe it was a couple of years different. So there's definitely not the same uh, extreme attention to detail with dates and facts and figures that we pride ourselves on today. So that's something that we uh, just need to bear in mind when we are looking into history is that we can't approach it in the exact same way that we would approach modern current events because they just didn't track things the exact same way that we do now or to the exact same uh, detail in terms of dates and years and all of that. Uh, So I won't go into too much more detail on that. Uh, But 
the uh, the the two pharaohs that I wanted to mention that I thought were pretty uh, pretty interesting, and I'll probably botch these names a little bit. I apologize to any Egyptian scholars listening in on this. Give me a little bit of grace. Um, so my thought, the best I can figure, is I believe the pharaoh of, of during Joseph's time was Kake Pere Senerset II, also called Sesostris II. And so there's a couple of things that's interesting is one, he did have a reign that was about 20 years. So that's pretty significant. That would have been uh, more than enough time for the whole encounter with Joseph and the 14 years between the seven years of harvest and the seven years of of famine. And of course, the years after that. And then we also see uh, what we do have a little bit of record of is his successor, which would have been uh, Sesostris III, uh, also known as Kakori Sinurset III. And he reigned uh, typically presumed to be around 1878 to 1860 BC. And what I love is that the, the big note uh, that's, that's kind of acknowledged about this pharaoh is that he was considered the most powerful of the Middle Kingdom pharaohs. And so I think the timeline lines up just perfectly that after these great years of abundance and, and expanding influence of the kingdom over the known world, that the successor, this, uh, this Sesostris III, would be the one to reap the benefits and be considered the most powerful of the Middle Kingdom pharaohs. So the timeline just seems to work out perfectly. Um, and from what we, uh, our best estimations on timing and dating is that uh, Sesostris III would actually be the one that was welcoming in the rest of the family of Israel. So when, uh, when he learned that Israel and all the brothers were Joseph's family, he encouraged them to come and take up residence in Egypt because he just wanted to show his great appreciation and he wanted to, to honor uh, the servant of God who not only, again, helped uh, and enabled Egypt to survive seven years of great famine, uh, but also allowed them to just have an expanding, reaching influence in a season that would have uh, potentially otherwise been uh, they would have been considering themselves lucky just to survive. So I uh, thought that was pretty cool. Now, where we left off last episode, and we'll kind of pick up here, and surprise, surprise, we're not going to get all the way through uh, the book of Exodus. <laughs> There's a, a few too many details to add uh, to really dive into, and I kind of want to touch on a few things because it's, I think, very critical information to know and to be able to reference when we do eventually get into our New Testament study. These are going to be things... Um, very, very crucial details and elements in Israel's history, as they would see it. So uh, where we left off was a very sad line. So this is uh, a couple of hundred years later. Uh, this is no longer the uh, the Middle Kingdom. This is actually a couple of, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, I guess epochs later, or whatever the right classification for that is. Um, so it's actually right at the top of what they call the New Kingdom of Egypt. And so if you're if you're more of a dynasty counter, this is uh, basically at the top of the 18th dynasty of Egypt. So that's the, the first dynasty when they started to classify the New Kingdom of Egypt, uh, which coincidentally is the era in which ancient Egypt achieved the peak and the pinnacle of its power. So when you look back at historic Egypt, um, the New Kingdom, quote-unquote, is is really a lot of the times it's what we think of when you think of it being kind of one of the great uh, civilizations, one of the great empires in antiquity. So coincidentally, that is 
the uh, the time frame for where Exodus picks up, and we started off with a really sad passage. It's Exodus chapter one, and a couple of verses here, verses six through eight. And so it reads out that a new king arose over Egypt. And so, of course, king in uh, Egyptian terms means pharaoh, and pharaoh in Egyptian terms means king. So there you go. Uh, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, this people, the sons of Israel, are more mighty than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us, fight against us, and depart from the land. And so that's just horribly sad. It's, it's the, the potential that exists anytime we try to abandon or forsake or refuse to learn from history. And I, I don't remember off the top of my head who famously said that those who refuse to study history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. And how true that is. Um, a new king arose over Egypt who didn't know his own history. He didn't know Joseph. He didn't have that appreciation uh, for their own heritage, for their own history. And, a, you know, a few hundred years pass, and what happens is he just sees a problem. He says, there's too many of these foreigners here, and all they have to do is decide that they don't like us, and they can rise up against us and wipe us out. So as often happens, uh, is, is often the case when you're dealing with fear, Fear tends to lead to poor decision making, and <laughs> this uh, this wicked pharaoh then basically comes up with a couple of plans. He says, "It's like, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and start committing these guys into slave labor. We're going to we're going to start appointing over them very very uh, cruel taskmasters. We're just going to start making these guys do forced labor, and we're gonna we're going to be very very mean about it." So they start doing that. And they start ruling with an iron fist. And surprise, surprise, when uh, when people are afflicted and feel like they are kind of have no other options and their their lives suck. Well, surprise, surprise, they go and find a way to console themselves. And the uh, the, the Israelites' version of consoling themselves was to repopulate. So there you go. <laughs> it's an interesting way of saying it. And so what winds up happening is they multiply and they spread out and the Egyptians become more and more afraid of the Israelites because their numbers just keep increasing. And so they made their high, their lives bitter with hard labor, doing a lot of brickwork, mortar work, working out in the fields. And eventually the, the Pharaoh just says, good grief, these guys just keep repopulating. He's like, all right, check it out. So he goes to the midwives and he says, all right, when you're helping the Hebrew women, the, the Israelite women give birth, check this out. If it's a son, put him to death. If it's a daughter, then she shall live. And I love this. And you look at verse 17. Uh, it says, But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. And so the king of Egypt called for the midwives, and he said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And this is probably one of the funniest verses I've ever come across. The midwives said to Pharaoh, well, because the Hebrew women are, are not as Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. <laughs> what a great cover story. Oh, dear. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. 
But the Pharaoh was not yet done. So then he commanded all his people, and he said, Every son who was born, you are to cast him into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. And that is very, very sad. So that's where Exodus begins. So when you forget your history and your heritage, you run the risk of getting into uh, really, really just poor decision-making and things that you can't undo, essentially. Um, So did a little bit more research on that one, just so you have some more fun names and dates to work with. Kind of have two potential pharaohs that this one could have been. Um, And I'll tell you which one I think. And so again, there's disputed chronology here, so we don't know for sure. Um, But it's either Amos one, which is, uh, he was basically the first, uh, first pharaoh in the 18th dynasty. So again, the first pharaoh in the new kingdom of Egypt in that era. Um, so he reigned, uh, most people want to say that he was reigning around 1549 to 1524 BC. Uh, but then also his successor was Amenhotep I. And Amenhotep I, depending on the source, some people think that he came into power at 1525 BC and then reigned until uh, 1504 BC. So my personal thought, my takeaway, is it makes sense that Amenhotep I was probably the pharaoh that's, uh, that's in this passage. And for a couple of reasons. Um, so we look on the timeline and we realize that Moses was born in 1525 BC. Uh, which is also when Amenhotep I would have began his rule. And Aaron, Moses' older brother, was born three years earlier, in 1528 BC. So on the one hand, it could make sense to, uh, to say that we thought Amos I was the, uh, was the pharaoh in question because he was the founder of this new dynasty, this new kingdom era. Uh, however, the fact that the, uh, the date of Moses' birth and the date of supposedly Amenhotep's rule beginning uh, seemed to be the same year. To me, that makes a little bit more sense because these other things didn't seem to be an issue, or they didn't seem to be in effect during uh, Mo- uh, excuse me during Aaron and Aaron's birthing. So, uh, so for the sake of that kind of three-year gap, to me, it makes a lot more sense to suppose that Amenhotep one would have most likely been the pharaoh in question at this point. Um, And so just to give you a little bit of a rundown on what happened after that. So, of course, uh, Moses, as a little baby, they uh, the mother, of course, couldn't drown him. And so they they wanted to just give him a chance at life. So they put him in a little basket, put him in the Nile River, and it winds up on the uh, the proverbial doorstep of Pharaoh's daughter. And she immediately has compassion and decides to raise Moses uh, in Pharaoh's house. So that's pretty amusing. Uh, so you see this, this tremendous preservation and privilege that happens is just astounding. Um, so after that, uh, many, many years pass and we don't really know exactly where all these things line up on the timeline. Um, it just says that as an adult, uh, Moses went out one day and he was walking and he saw one of the Egyptians, uh, being very violent, beating one of the Israelites. And so Moses rose up in kind of a, an emotional moment and decided to murder the Egyptian. And he thought he got away with it, but he started uh, 
getting suspicious that he had been found out. And so he winds up fleeing the land of Egypt and going off into the land of Midian. So we don't know exactly when that is, uh, but there's quite a few pharaohs uh, that reigned after Amenhotep. So we, uh, we go through Thutmose I, Thutmose II, and then, uh, I'm going to mess this one up, Hatshepsut, that's actually pretty close, um, who coincidentally was the, uh, the aunt of Thutmose III. Now, Thutmose III, you might recognize from, uh, from history class, is being famously called the Pharaoh of the Oppression. And so it's during his reign that everything kind of came to more of a climax with the, uh, with the Israelites and, and just redoubling all of the, the harshness of the labor and really causing the people just to let up a big uh, cry, like a big cry of anguish and requesting God to give them deliverance. Um, and so you've got Thumos III and then also uh, his successor, which was Amenhotep II. And so that's the one that's famously known as the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And so these are all going to be, again, um, during the, uh, the New Kingdom of Egypt. So if you're looking on the timeline, you can kind of put some names and faces and dates uh, along with what we see in Scripture. Uh, because Pharaoh, again, is just more of a title, like basically saying king. Um, yeah, so being able to actually put some names with those. So we don't know exactly uh, exactly where all those things land on the timeline, uh, but what's pretty interesting, so Moses, getting back to his story, he flees off to the land of Midian and winds up uh, getting married and raising a family out in the wilderness. And again, we don't know how much time passes, but it seems like it could be at least maybe anywhere from 30 to 40 or maybe even 50 years that he's out in the land of Midian. And, and uh, eventually... God says, okay, Moses, you've had your time. It's, it's time for you to come back to Egypt. I need you to come back to your people. I need you to be an intercessor on behalf of the people. And I need you to ask Pharaoh to let your people go, to release them from slavery, to release them from bondage, and to let them go. And Moses is like, what? And uh, to make the whole experience a lot more interesting, God speaks very palpably to Moses through a burning bush, a bush that's burning, but it's not being consumed. And, and this is just out in the mountains there in Midian. And, and Moses thinks, well, that's strange. Um, so he has this conversation. He, he kind of argues back and forth. He's true to his heritage. You know, the, the Israelites, you know, Israel means the one who wrestles with God. So he's, he's definitely Israelite. He's Jewish. He's, he's, he's not going to just, you know, take God's command lying down. He's going to make sure that he puts in his two cents. He says, well, you know, there's other people that would be good leaders and they're out, they're well-spoken and they're, you know, prime positions. And God says, no, I'm going to use you. I want you to do it. And it gets, (laughs) it gets ridiculous. If you read through Exodus, you'll just laugh. You'll be like, man, Moses just really was like fighting tooth and nail to make sure that he did not have to be God's vessel. And, uh, and God finally gets pretty mad at him a couple of times. And Moses's wife has to intervene and, and make sure that, uh, that tensions don't rise further than they have to. Uh, so anyways, eventually, begrudgingly, Moses thinks, okay, I guess maybe God has a plan, even though it doesn't make sense to me. And uh, so that's all rather humorous and such. Um, we jump forward really quick up to, uh, to Exodus 7. In verse 7, and you see that eventually when Moses and, again, his brother Aaron 
uh, when they go in to speak to Pharaoh to for the first time to convey that message of let my people go, the famous line, uh, that Moses was 80 years old. Let that soak in. 80 years old. And Aaron, his brother, three years older, was 83 years old the first time they went in to speak to Pharaoh. My goodness. Well, um, don't ever think that you are too old for God to still use you to do something new, for a new move, a new uh, season, a new mission, a new ministry, a new exodus. Never count yourself out. Don't think you're too old. Likewise, don't think you're too young. Don't think you're too rich, too poor, too this or that. God can use anyone. And the second that you want to count yourself out is probably the same second that he's getting ready to count you right on in. So get prepared for that. Um, 80 years old, good grief. So not too surprisingly, uh, if you're familiar with the the narrative a little bit, uh, we go through the, the infamous plague. So basically Pharaoh is incredibly stubborn. He says, my goodness, we are making hand over fist cash in our economy and in our industry uh, by having these approximately 2 million slaves, uh, the industry just growing and, and exploding and uh, continuing to make Egypt expand as the dominant world power at the time. So, of course, he hardens his heart. He says, you know what? I don't feel like I want to give up that huge advantage in our economic backbone. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and say no. And so... Uh, 10 different times at least, I think it's actually more than that, but there's at least 10 different times that Moses and Aaron come back to Pharaoh and say, please let our people go. And, uh, and eventually, you know, you start seeing these, these things that we come now to call the plagues. And, you know, you go through the plague of turning the Nile into blood. You've got the frogs, the gnats, the insects, uh, the livestock dying, the boils, the thunder, hail, fire, the locusts, the darkness, and then ultimately the death of the firstborns. And each one of these, as we read through it, the idea is that that every single time that Pharaoh had the ability, had the option, was, uh, was given the, the opportunity to say, okay, I'll let your people go. I fear and honor God, and if that's what he says to do, then let's do it. And unfortunately, he just continued to be stubborn the entire time. And, and it wasn't until all the way up until the death of the firstborn that he finally, uh, with a broken heart, um, said, okay, go ahead and leave. And, uh, and how sad that he had to be so crushed uh, in order to be compliant with God's will. Um, so maybe that would be a little bit of an encouragement to us as well, to not have to be so stubborn. So we do, uh, in, in preparation or anticipation of that 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, uh, there was a, uh, an out that was provided, and it was provided to all the sons of Israel, and actually I think even to some of the, uh, some of the sympathetic Egyptians. Uh, but it was this picture of what we now call the Passover. And basically what was, uh, what was foretold is, Okay, what you guys need to do tonight is, um, well, actually, I'll just go ahead and read this for you right out of Exodus. What is this? Exodus 12, verse uh, 21 through 24. 
So Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families, and slay the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel of the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through and smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel of the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. And you do see that uh, when we do get to the New Testament, that they observe the annual Passover feast. And that is, um, is something that did continue in uh, perpetuity throughout Israel's history. And even today, it's, it's still celebrated every year, the Passover. And it's just a time to remember God's faithfulness and his ability to restrain the destroyer from doing what the destroyer does, which is destroy. <laughs> I know, very, very insightful there. And I don't want to go really too deep into ancient Near Eastern uh, mythology and literature and superstitions and all that, uh, but that's probably something that we'll touch on somewhere way down the road when we get back into doing a more in-depth study on the Old Testament as well, probably doing the same chrono- uh, chronological approach. Uh, but one of the things that's pretty interesting to look at is uh, the the Israelites, the authors of the whole Old Testament, they, they were inspired, divinely inspired, but they also wrote and translated thoughts and concepts and ideas in the language that they understood and were familiar with. And so, not surprisingly, they tend to include a fair amount of ancient Near Eastern language, literature, superstition, and all those kinds of things. Um, and so you're, when you read the first part of one of those verses, you see that, you know, they say, well, the, the Lord's going to come in and smite the Egyptians, you know, and that's kind of their way of, they thought they were attributing greatness to God. Um, but fortunately, you do see the reality of the expression there in the second line there where it says, he's going to prevent the destroyer from destroying and so you get this very clear picture that God is not the destroyer, but he can limit the destroyer's ability to destroy. Um, so it's, it's, it's a very key distinction to make in acknowledging that God is not the one that destroys, but rather the one that preserves life. Um, and so we do see that show up uh, very, very prevalently throughout the entire Old Testament, uh, that God's plan is never for violence and destruction, but it's always for nonviolence and for life. Take a look even at Exodus 23, verses 27 through 30. This was God's original plan for how to prepare the promised land for the Israelites. He says, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. I will make all of your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you so they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, that the, man, that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Rather, I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. And so when you do see destruction, when you do see bloodthirst, uh, these are essentially uh, people interposing their own will or their own understanding, their own zeitgeist, the way that they think that the world works, 
and they're they're kind of reading in what they understand from their own context and culture. They're saying, oh, well, all of these pagan cultures think that it is honoring to their deities to ascribe bloodthirst to them. And so I guess that's how we'll ascribe it to God. Well, yeah, okay, if somebody's getting destroyed, that must be what he wants. Um, and so you do see there's there's kind of this veil of confusion that, that masks over a lot of the writing. But when you begin to study it, you start to see that, okay, well, that's here's where you can... You can determine, you can distinguish what is, uh, what are those elements that were kind of falsely explained versus what were the elements, where are the passages where God's true nature breaks through and you get to see it revealed as it is, as God's nature is. It's what's consistent with his nature in, uh, as revealed in Christ, which as we see in the New Testament uh, is explained as being the exact representation of of God's nature. So anything that looks like it's not 100% cohesive with the nature of Jesus Christ revealed incarnate, as well as what we see revealed throughout the uh, the, the homilies of Paul and the other New Testament authors, um, if it doesn't look like Christ, then you're probably not understanding it right. So that's a, a very easy lens to look back through and kind of filter out a lot of these uh, little nuances of the Old Testament. So I thought that was a pretty cool thing to, to highlight out of the uh, Passover section. So we do see what's famously referred to as the Exodus. So there's a mass Exodus of God's people, the uh, Israelites, out of slavery in the land of Egypt and into what will eventually be what he's calling the promised land. Uh, but in the meantime, they have to make a pit stop in the wilderness and the wilderness wanderings were supposed to not take very long, um, but the people, well, I've heard it said before, and it's very, <laughs> very accurate, that God was able to take his people out of Egypt, but the people were unwilling to take Egypt out of their hearts. And so they just really, really clung to that life of slavery, and they, they refused to really enter the land of promise and to the calling to understand and recognize and acknowledge their identity as God's people. They said, we want to go back to what we know, even though it sucks, because we know it. We don't want to go into something that's new and scary and uncertain, even if it has the potential to be significantly better in a life of abundance, living in a land flowing with milk and honey, as the expression goes. So what should have only taken, you know, maybe a few years wounds up, uh, wound up taking 40 years. And most of that was just the people wandering through the desert and <laughs> fighting with God and fighting with Moses and fighting with themselves and sometimes fighting with other people and just doing every ridiculous thing that they could think to do. Uh, so <laughs> at one point, God comes in and he says, okay, check it out. Here's my plan. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. I want to have this sweet, intimate relationship with each one of you, getting back to the way that creation started in the Garden of Eden, having that intimate, beautiful, deep, growing relationship with each one of you. And in Exodus 20, I think we come across what's probably, in my opinion, the most sad verse, maybe in all of scripture. And it's Exodus 20, Verse 19, and the people said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us 
or we will die. Oh my goodness, what a crippling, just heartbreaking thing for the people to say. They say, you speak to us, Moses. We'll listen to you as an as a emissary, as an intermediary, but don't let God speak to us directly. Oh my goodness, how must that have broken God's heart? How sad. Dreadful. And I think that really became a, uh, a recurring theme, even though the people didn't necessarily say that again and again. That kind of uh, epitomized their actions over generations, is they didn't want to have a personal connection with God. They wanted to go through intermediaries, through emissaries. They wanted to have somebody who could be a figurehead that they could listen to. Uh, let's go get a, let's go have a priest. Let's go have, you know, somebody that, that talks to God and they'll tell us whatever God's saying, but then we don't have to be involved with that process. We don't have to let it make a difference in our own lives. We certainly don't want to be a part of it and have it change and, and require an intimate personal relationship with us. And, uh, and that's so just sad, especially with regard to God's whole nature and his whole desire for intimacy with each one of us, uh, to see that that's what the people rejected. How crushing. And yet God didn't give up. He stuck with the people and he said, I will continue to be faithful to you, even though you fail to be faithful to me. And eventually my hope is that I will win you over with love, with steadfastness, and just with this unfailing sense of determination. And that's what you see through the whole Testament, this recurring theme of, of God just being steadfast and loving and accepting and gracious and forgiving and merciful and dealing with direct opposition from his own people at almost every single pass. And yet God says, I still love you. Isn't that beautiful? Well, we'll wrap it up there for today, and we'll pick up where we left off in the next episode. I'm looking forward to it, and as always, thank you for joining for this episode. Hopefully, we'll see you again next episode, and in the meantime, I just encourage you to continue being faithful in your time in the Word, and your times in prayer and in worship. Continue to lean in closer to your Jesus, walking closer with Him every day. Mm-hmm.